I, I was just speaking to a chef the other day, professionally speaking to a chef as an investment person. And I had to explain that when he's talking and people are drooling, that's a compliment. When I'm talking and people are drooling, it is not. It is a different kind of drool. It's because they've lost track of what we're saying. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That's very definitely aspirationally speaking. Sorry about that, boys and girls that aren't listening. Welcome to The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Together we are bald and bearded, and we also talk about economics. This is The Personal Wealth Coach, where we talk about... All things not related to sports, Uh, mostly finance stuff, how to manage personal finances, the big picture look of what's going on in the economy in general, what does it mean when we talk about infrastructure plan, all that good stuff. But before we get started, we have disclosures. So the first disclosure is that the personal wealth coach is not only the name of this wonderful radio program or podcast, depending on how you're listening It is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Now, just because it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that they give us any kind of approval. They don't do that. They're the government. They don't give thumbs up. That's not, and they don't have that in their vocabulary. There's no, no. So let's say that no. Uh, We offer fiduciary investment advice through our firm, The Personal Wealth Coach. But that cannot occur on a podcast or on the radio because we're required to know you intimately and to be giving advice custom-suited to you as fiduciaries and to keep that information private. So even if we knew all of you, we'd still have to find some way of keeping the information private. So what is it that we're doing instead? It's educational. We are here to re-educate you at our camp. Um, no, we're trying to, hope, hopefully this is, <laughs> this is good stuff that will allow you to make good financial decisions into the future. And now on to the next disclosure. Let's see, what else? Yes, the information we present on this radio program, uh, the educational information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Now, what you guys don't know about this guy, or maybe those of you that do know about it are, are nodding your head, is that's how he talks most of the time. He does say things like, no, we make no guarantee or warranty of this when we're talking about whether or not we have enough ketchup on the table. This is serious. It's also humorous. It's humorous because it is serious. There. So when you think that we've just... Dropped into weird legalese mumbo-jumbo. Just know that it occurs at the dinner table as well. There. They have opened the window into our private lives a little bit wider. So what happened this week in the market? Let's see. What happened in the market? The market went up and down, and it decided to quit on Thursday evening and go home. Oh Yeah, well, it was because Friday was such a good Friday for it. We only had four days in the market week this week. Um, 
and it did fairly well for those four days. It uh, went up 1.4%, but it, if you, if you follow the S&P 500 such as we do, and it's kind of hard to follow sometimes because it behaves weirdly, it was a significant week because it crossed 4,000. You know, people get excited when the Dow crosses a round number, but... Because uh, round numbers, it, for some reason, are good. Well, we think they're important. They're easy to remember. They have a lot of zeros in them. That's a, And it's crossed above 4,000, which is pretty important. It closed out the week at 4,019.87, so that's comfortably above 4,000. And it was an unusual week in one sense in that the market went up very smoothly all week. Each matter of fact, oddly enough, each morning when the market opened, it would jump up a little bit and then continue to slowly rise during the rest of the day, and it happened all week. In other words, it looked like a week where there was nothing but good news and everything was running along very smoothly, except for the fact that there was lots of things that weren't good news going on out there. Um, like for a big chunk of the weekend and the week, uh, the Suez Canal was totally blocked. <laughs> and Archigo's Capital Management, I learned how to pronounce that finally, failed, which doesn't sound like anything particularly important except for the fact it cost in excess of $30 billion in losses to major investment banks. It's not as big as the Lehman Brothers failure, uh, but it's up there. $30 billion is still a lot of money, even to the money center banks. And normally, when you have a major investment firm, like Archigos, fail, and the banks realize, and the, and the realization hits that the major investment banks, like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and so on, uh, lost $30 billion on the deal. That would cause the market to at least have a hiccup, but it, did, it acted like it didn't even happen. Yeah, it just kept on rising. It's very interesting. And you fi figured the way to to pronounce it. I've wondered that. You said Archigos? Archigos. Archigos. I read it a lot. I've not, I don't know how to pronounce it. I, it's, I have been saying Archigos, which seems quite appropriate in that their egos seem to be pretty arch until they collapsed. But, mm. uh, so what happened there? Uh, let's, that, let, let's finish the market and then we'll come back to this. This is, this is juicy stuff as to what happened. Well, it's, it's sort of part of the market, but the fact is that, uh, well, we can, we can talk about that in some detail. We even right. have a question about it. Uh, the important thing is to recognize that the market did continue to rise slowly during the week, and there was some really good reasons for it to rise. I think I mean, the long, the the ten-year Treasury, which is part of the market, the ten-year Treasury yield dropped from about one point seven eight last week down to well, it was one point seven eight during last week down to one point six seven seven, which doesn't sound like a lot. It's not a big deal, but it's down. The fact that it went down was not because they think that bond investors and the bond market in general thinks that. The economy is not going to recover very nicely. They went down because the fear of inflation started to evaporate because as we start to get more and more indicators in, despite the fact that we the, the stimulus checks have hit the economy pretty thoroughly right now, they believe they've got into the people's hands. The inflation effects caused by the log jams in the logistics network, which I think is a funny thing, a log jam and a logistics network, uh, have started to push prices up. All the indicators are out there. Wait, wait let, let's say that in a different way. A logistical log jam. Yes, a log, a log, log jam. A, That'd be a log, 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 log jam. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, we are nerds and we enjoy bad puns. What? The point is that despite the fact that prices are going up, 
wherever logistics are causing a logjam because the cost of transportation of those of items is going up because there's a shortage of transportation capability. What we're not seeing is underlying inflation rise. We're not seeing the core of inflation generating events occur. And for those of you who we can go into great detail about how inflation occurred back in the 1970s, which is what people are afraid of, but inflation basically happens when wages go up faster than the cost of living. And that just hasn't happened. We've still got a big slack in the labor market. We got about 10 million people unemployed in the United States looking for, that's just the ones who are looking for work. So this is, you know, when we we've, we've talked about this the last several weeks, when we say we see uh, a short-term surge in inflation followed by coming back to reality, it's because it, it, the stimulus money is not a constant stream. It's a one-time event, and we still have the same number of people unemployed, roughly, as we did before the stimulus, which means that once that money is in the system and causes whatever stir it does right there at the beginning— it has to dampen back down. That's what stimulus is about. It's adding back to a system that's not full. It's not topping a system off that's already full. And that's where inflation occurs is the inflate the system's already full and we add more to it. This is this is why we didn't get runaway inflation with the quantitative easing that took place during the uh, Great Recession. And there is this is this is something that most people are really not aware of, and we can go into more detail on this later. There is an imp- impending mortgage catastrophe that is that hasn't gone away during this period uh, where we set it to, hey, you don't have to make your payments because you have to make the back payments now. And that's still coming down the road. There's also a lot of people that couldn't make the payments at all and still can't make the payments. So as soon as the release is made that says, all right, now you owe your mortgage again, We've got problems coming on that front. So just know that if you look at the picture now and you say, things look great, why are we, you know, we're going to get runaway inflation if we do this. There's a lot of artificial propping that's going on that's keeping the economy running pretty smoothly in a period where traditionally we would be on the rocks. We would, that's a not a whiskey term, that's the sailor term. On the rocks might be a good term on that. Just, just as a side note, when I, I was just speaking to a chef the other day, professionally speaking to a chef as an investment person, and I had to explain that when he's talking and people are drooling, that's a compliment. When I'm talking and people are drooling, it is not. It is a different kind of drool. It's because they've lost track of what we're saying. But the, the mortgage issue coming should not be something that causes drool. It should be something that we say, all right, how are we planning on handling it? There's a plan in place, but people aren't aware of it. So what is, what is the plan? The plan is that the federal reserve is working with banks right now to look at the high risk situations and the low risk situations. And they are working out uh, payment plan concepts and the Federal Reserve has a, an emergency fund available to help the banks if any given bank bears too much of the burden of collapsing mortgage markets. And this is another thing that's going on. I've got articles on it 
that I wanted to talk about. Um, Wall Street Journal had a big thing on there. Need a mortgage loan? Good luck. Lenders are tightening standards. This is what yep. we're talking about. Yep, I got that. So the S&P 500, we, we also ended the quarter last week. Normally at the end of the quarter, we get a lot of movement because of what's called triple witching hour, where you have uh, a lot of options expiring and stocks being sold, stocks being bought, and sometimes we get a dip. You're not, supposed to eat, one. you're not supposed to eat an option after it expires, right? That's right. You yeah. should keep it in the refrigerator otherwise. Yeah, okay, gotcha. And you can freeze an option and this, under some circumstances. There are options on frozen food. And when you have frozen food options expiring, what is that? Ah, I don't know. That yeah. sounds terrible. Horrible. Anyway, the S&P 500 closed out the quarter up 5.8%. Now, that was, for those of you who weren't watching, that was Thursday that the quarter ended. Now, Wednesday when the quarter ended and Thursday when the week ended. Um, but with one day of April under its belt, April 1st, and this is not a joke, the year-to-date gain surged to 7.02%, which is good. Another point that we made in the newsletter that I think is important, you can, if you think back, if you've got good long-term memory, remember in November, if you were afraid that the market was going to crash because fill in the blank gets elected. Yeah, and it really literally was fill in the blank. We had an equal number of people afraid that Trump would be reelected as we had people afraid that Biden would be elected. Well... The market is the the S and P five hundred index is up fourteen point five six percent five months since the election. So if you didn't get out of the market because you were concerned about the results of the election, feel good about that. You got a fourteen percent gain. The other thing that you should feel good about. Wait, can I throw can I throw on the logic behind that? Because a lot of people are still confused. They're like, wait a minute, but Biden got elected. That means taxes or some great new spending stuff. That's not good for the economy, right? And other people are saying, but this is great. It's infrastructure spending and so on. Well, that's exactly the point. Every time we have a really tight election, those are the points where people say the market's going to go really bad if the other side wins. And it doesn't matter which other side it is. And what we come back to every time, let's go to the behavior. If it's a tight election, it's because there's roughly equal numbers on both sides that want their candidate to win and there's roughly an equal amount of financing for the elections that's kind of how this works if otherwise it's not a good competition it wouldn't be a tight election that you would be scared of losing there's an equal amount of money and an equal amount of pride on the line on both sides or it wouldn't be a tight election those same people that are equally passionate and willing to fund in equal amounts these elections are also invested in the stock market equally with roughly equal investments in the stock market. Just because the other guy wins doesn't mean that they're going to, at a great loss to themselves, dump all of the money that they have out of the system. And that is, that's what's going on. The opposite side makes the same decision you do when they lose an election. And we've now had enough opposite sides win that we can say it's universal. When, uh, if Obama won and you were upset, or Biden won and you were upset, or if Trump won and you were upset, you can look at each of those occasions in the market and they look pretty much identical to each other because people just are happy that the election season's over. <laughs> they can go back to day-to-day -day life. 
Well, I was sorry, very well remember people being scared that George W. Bush would win the election. Right. And he won. And as a result, the market didn't crash. I also had people that were terrified that Al Gore was going to win the election. And the reality is that as bad as our system is, it's still better than all the other ones. And we still have checks and balances in place that cause it to be hard to make dramatic shifts. President Trump found that out. President Obama found that out. And then they found out how easy it was to shift their hard shifts back easily as soon as the next president comes into office. So what's the big impact on the economy? There can be impact on immigration. This is longer term. It's not going to affect the market this quarter. It's something that could happen long, long term, positive or negative. Anyway, this is a completely, I, I didn't want to necessarily delve into this at the detail that we have, but I think it's a big enough curiosity that having covered it in that amount is good. Well, the other thing you can be happy about is if you didn't bail out about a year ago, March 23rd, when the uh, market hit bottom. Of course, you didn't know it was hitting bottom at the time. You may have thought it was going to continue down forever and you're going to lose all your money. And there were some people who felt honest fear that that was literally going to happen. The market would continue down forever and they'd lose their money. And it was uh, certain television channels that touted that theory and yelled and scared people apparently half to death. I don't watch those channels, so unfortunately I missed that. Just as a side note, what happens if you get scared half to death twice? You're three quarters of the way to death. Oh, yeah, that's diminishing returns. You can't really no. just get all the way to death with a scare. Okay, right. go ahead. I, you can be scared half to death a lot. You'll never get completely to death because you're only going halfway each time. And this is why those programs are so profitable when they run this sort of infomercial where they're saying buy gold or whatever. The But the point is that the market, the stock market, the S&P 500 is up 80, 80%. Get that, 80%. Since it's since March 23rd of last year. Now that's from the now, bottom. That's obviously from the bottom, but it's a, still a. That sounds like something you would hear a GameStop crazy rise, but it was just the overall market. The important thing to realize is that if you did not bail out of the market last March, you have seen an 80% rise in the value. If you in the S and if you if you invested in the S and P 500, which nobody technically can be, but if you're you, you've seen a pretty dramatic rise probably if you're in stocks at all no matter where you're in stocks since march of last year and you can pat yourself on the back although be careful because you can throw your shoulder on a joint easily very easily doing that you can pat yourself on the back that you didn't bail out and as a result got a very substantial gain and you've ridden that gain up and hopefully you're not being too crazy about it um i mentioned the fact that the treasury yield dropped a little bit it dropped again not because of uh, not not because people think the economy is not going to recover. Or we don't. They don't think we're going to have a boom. We're still up a whole bunch from the less than one percent level we were at the beginning of the year, up at one point six seven seven, almost one point seven percent. The important thing to realize is that the fear of inflation that ro- reared its ugly head, which by the way we don't think is a threat. Uh, not the fear. The, we, we don't think inflation, serious long-term inflation, has any chance of taking hold in the United States at this point. The fear of inflation is gradually going away. Anytime that you get, by the way, the fear of something that causes the market to take a dip is a very good thing. It's when all that fear disappears that you should become worried. And that's when we'll be worried. We just, he just said that we don't, we don't see a lot of inflation risk in the future. 
part of the reason why we see low inflation risk is because everybody's so worried about inflation risk right now. If you have a, a large number of headlines being afraid about inflation, then everybody's doing everything they can to keep that inflation from occurring. It's when people say inflation's not a big deal anymore that we start getting worried. Now, that's not to say we're not going to have some inflation this year. It's already there. If you're right. trying to buy a house or if you're trying to sell a house or if you're at all aware of what's going on in houses, that's called inflation. When the same house with no improvement goes up 11.4% in one year, which they have on average in the United States, that's inflation. And that's a supply and demand issue. But it's one of the few supply and demand issues we have in the United States right now. We do have logistics issues that are going to force prices up. We only have so much highway, so many trucks, so many railroads, so many, so much rail capacity that we can use. And above all, the shipping containers are filling up, yeah. uh, backed up, and ships are backed up all over the country, all over the world, literally, not just in the United States. Yeah, the uh, the port of Los Angeles is weeks and weeks and weeks behind in its offloading because things got so snarled up in so many different places. We've got issues like we don't have enough slips for the ships. We may not. That sounded that that was a good that was a good rhyme. We don't have enough slips for ships. We should have a chant. Yeah, more slips for ships. More slip. No, I don't think it's going to catch on. Um, I don't know. I think it's pretty pretty catchy. All of the major ports have done major dredging work in the last decade, and it's not keeping up with the technological shift of the shipping industry. What does that mean? The average draft, and that's not whether or not you go to Vietnam, as a side note, that's how deep from the waterline you go down before the bottom of your keel in a ship. The average draft over the last 25 years in the major shipping container industry has gone from 35 feet to 45 feet. That doesn't seem like a big deal, except that it's increasing. Over the last several years, more and more ships are being made with 50-plus foot drafts. We only have one port that they can go to at this point, and only a small part of that port. And we've spent a tremendous amount of money on dredging. But the reality is that if we're going to be shipping a lot of stuff, and this includes not just the cargo ships, the big tankers are in the same, get at this, in the same boat. I did it. I did a nautical pun. That was not a naughty of me. Wait, no, that was a bad, bad nautical pun. It was naughty of you. Yeah. Um, so what does that mean? It means that, the way the shipping lines work is that the bigger ships get priority. Uh, if you ever doubt that, get in a little one and get in front of a big one and see who gets priority. Just, just try it. Um, there's a psychological push as well as a legal thing. It's harder for the big ships to stop. So as they're coming in, and what happened in the Suez Canal is an example of that, uh, the, the Suez Canal needs to be upgraded. The Panama Canal needs to be update, updated, upgraded. Um, all of our ports need to be, have some real serious work done on them. They've had real serious work done. They need more. And if we don't do that, then we will not continue to have the low prices that we have. We will not have, and what does that mean? Let, let me kind of, 
What does that mean? We're just buying stuff from China and that we should just stop buying from China. Think of it from a business perspective. You are manufacturing, say. Well, in order to manufacture, you need robotics. Say you're manufacturing robotics. Well, you need the microchips and you need the uh, servos and you need the, the plastic parts that go on the outside and the form-fitting machines to make the plastic parts the right size. You need all these things. Well, where do you get them all? Well, from all over the place. So a completely American-based business of manufacturing needs to have good port infrastructure so that we can manufacture in the United States. This isn't just an import-export thing. In fact, a lot of what we import and export is American-owned from beginning to end. It's not a real export or an import if Ford Motor Company owns it the whole way or if Apple owns it the whole way. Yes, Apple employed Chinese companies to make it, but they're getting paid hourly wages, not the profit margin on an iPhone. And those are things that we have to understand as we move along, is that this is a mixed bag. It isn't a simple concept of let's stop importing and exporting or we, we need to change our, our trade deficit numbers. Or They're confusing. And in order for us to be a powerhouse economy, we need to have the ability to export and import in a way that's efficient. And just for the convenience of it, it's nice to know that when you order something and they say it's going to be delivered in two days, that it doesn't get a little thing saying, hey, it's been delayed. It's gone to Egypt first because Suez, canal stuff. There you go. Thanks. So it slows down business in every regard. Amazon's an American company, makes the vast majority of the profit and any item that is sold on Amazon, but it might be coming from China. So is it an American profit that we're talking about? Well, partially. So that's, that's kind of my bottom line. And we're kind of going off. We've got some questions that we've been ignoring. Did you have anything else to say about the market before we move on to yeah, our we questions? We normally discuss the price of oil at 61.24 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate. It rose 0.71%. Not a lot, but that's still pretty impressive. That's up about 27% year to date. And it's important that, to note that rise in the price of oil this week. And it wasn't just because of logistics. Because Saudi Arabia and OPEC announced that they are going to open up the oil taps a little bit steadily over the next several months. Normally that causes the price of oil to drop during a week, and this, year, this week it rose. The only reason the price of oil is steady to rising and, and stay, setting up in the 60-some dollar range, which is, by the way, pretty much where it was before the pandemic, is because there's lots of... When we talk about the price of oil, we're actually talking about futures contracts, near-term futures contracts for the next month. And... There's a lot of indications out there that the people are buying uh, contracts to supply themselves with oil into the future because they anticipate uh, the, the demand going up. They're basically increasing the amount of oil they're buying for future, for future delivery because they anticipate greater demand. And presuming the greater demand emerges as vaccination increases and everything begins to come back to normal, everything... The bottom line to what the markets are telling us, and any one market can be way off and maybe even two markets can be way off. Generally speaking, when you get three markets in agreement over a longer period of time, like we've seen this year, 
that is a strong indication that the, of a forecast for the future, future always being uncertain. But the markets are consistently telling us that they're anticipating during the calendar year 2021 a dramatic increase in economic activity in the United States. That sums it up very nicely. All right. So we have three questions that have been waiting in the wings for us to take the moment and acknowledge them. Number one, as a pretty pretty generic kind of general question on, uh, he's been reading, this is, this is from Dave, he's been reading about ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Scores. What does it mean? What, how does that affect our investments? Um, he says it's tied to the Great Reset Plan, which looks concerning on many different levels. So here, here is the concept. ESG is a term that was put forth by Morningstar a few years ago, and we were at the conference where Morningstar announced it. So I suppose we were there from the beginning. We use Morningstar. What is Morningstar? Morningstar is a third-party rating service for mutual funds and other investment vehicles. And they're pretty good at what they do. Now, Every company that rates other companies for a living has scandals, and they've had some recent ones. We still think that they give pretty good analysis of uh, mutual funds, so uh, we haven't caught them messing up there. So what is ESG? There's always this thought when people hear ESG that it's some kind of a liberal trick somehow, that it's part of a great political change. To some extent, it is a political shift and that the younger generations of investors, starting at Generation X, going through millennials and now the Y generation, as they're coming up, or are they called the Z generation? Actually, I've actually heard them referred to as the Z generation. Okay, because the millennials were kind of the Y generation, but they got a name. X is, we, we just got stuck with a letter. The Y generation, I guess they've got a question at least. Why is at least a, a word? Anyway, the younger generations, they want to look at sustainability. And when I say sustainability, I'm not just talking about how good is it for the environment. I mean sustainability as an old school, what's profitable at a meat packing plant. You don't waste anything. You sell the hides, you use the hooves in the collagen creation for, for gelatin. You, you use everything. And that's part of sustainability. ESG is a very non-objective. It is very subjective in its scoring. So environmental, social, and governance. So let's talk about governance. That could be at the mutual fund level, or it could be if you're talking about foreign countries at the actual government level. One of the interesting factors is that the ESG scores are extremely high for companies in Saudi Arabia who are heavily debating whether or not it's legal for women to drive cars. So don't get too wrapped up in this being a liberal phenomena. Think of it more, is it advancing potential economic growth in the area around it. And there are a series of sustainability things that do advance economic growth, like training your employees, giving them good education, providing education in the area around your employees so that you have future employees to hire. 
you wanted to say something here? Well, I just wanted to say that ESG is very poorly defined in an official sense. So when somebody when somebody says we're an ESG fund or there, there's some organizations says we're an ESG stock, it's not like the USDA has come in and said, oh, yeah, this this is in fact organic or something. Yeah, there, there's no universal standard there. And there is it is a it is a bit of a fad thing, but it's a fad thing that's probably going to stick with us for some time. It is in in essence, ESG is a form of value investing. In other words, you look at the underlying company and say, is this a good company? Is this a good company that's doing uh, sustainable work that's likely to be here 20 years from now? Then it's a better company than some other company. But don't don't get suckered in if you if you think that's important, and I think it is important. Well. If, Don't get suckered in by the brand name ESG because there's no generally accepted absolute definition of it and there's no certification for it. And it, that makes it easily gameable. If you want to start an investment vehicle and just hire a bunch of um, or, or buy a bunch of things that are kind of designed because you know they're going to make your ESG score go way up, it doesn't mean necessarily that the performance is going to follow. In fact, quite often it doesn't. What What is true? I mean, here's a great example. Walmart has a great ESG score. People are like, what? Walmart has an ESG score? This is environmental stuff. This is a lib-. No. They look at profitability and where it's more profitable to put solar panels on their roof, they're going to do it because they want to give their shareholders profitability. And in doing that, they created a more sustainable electricity grid so that's how esg should be applied you look at each decision and say is that a long-term profitable decision for the company not just always doing good stuff because that's that's a charity a charity would be something that's just doing good stuff to do good stuff that's not intended to be profitable so that's that's the line you have to walk if you go too too far into we're just doing this for environmental reasons, then you become CalPERS. That's the California pension system, which has caused its own returns to do abysmally for decades because they get they buy a company just so that they can force it to do something that's totally not profitable for that company but make the environment greater somehow. Just know that they're not the same thing. ESG can be a score applied to an investment that can be actually a good number to look at if you know what it means, you got to know what it means. It's not simple. All right. So we got a couple of other questions out there. And this is, this is a great one from John, who's again, given us a picture of the paper version of the wall street journal. So we get the electronic version of the wall street journal already. We also get the electronic version of the paper version of the electronic. Yeah. So on, there's something meta here. This is deep levels going down like inception. Um, his question is, you guys have been talking about value for several months. Why haven't the institutional investors joined in? And he's got a portion of, of an article and the article is called recovery stocks feel some pain. And there's a portion circled a quote saying institutional investors still haven't embraced the value trade. Cause a lot of times institutional investors make the same bad decisions that retail investors do. The article, I like the Wall Street Journal a lot, and I like its analysis a lot. I prefer their factual reporting. There's some um, there's some interesting aspects to that article. For instance, it quotes the Russell 2000 as one of the 
uh, one of the indexes or indices that's suffering some pain. Well, the Russell 2000 is anything but a value index. It's a high growth index. It's a small cap index. Right. And it's talking about recovery stocks. No, the institutional investors have not embraced, fully embraced value stocks, but somebody was spending a lot of billions of dollars buying value stocks, which is why, and I didn't mention this in the, when we're talking about the market, the S&P 500 may be up 7%, but the, the mid-cap value index, the CRSP mid-cap value index is up, let's see, what did I say, if over 14% for the year so far, year to date. So there's not a lot of pain being felt there. Matter of fact, it was up for the week and it's it's up consistently. So there's no pain, at least in the mid-cap value index. And and I also was looking at the large-cap value index, uh, the Russell 1000 value, didn't see any evidence of pain there. So the, the writer of that article was... Uh, a little confused. He's extrapolating a little bit. There's been a lot more money going into value stocks over the last, so far this year for the calendar year than they were going into growth stocks. And and just just because I think you did this on purpose to needle us for the last several months, we've been talking about value. We've been talking about Years. value for the last several decades. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is a for from our perspective that there's some fundamental aspects of the market that remain true for long periods of time into the past there's no end to the time that it remained true and that is that if a company is worth more than what you bought it for it's generally a good reason to buy it <laughs> and that's value investing uh so yeah we've talked right. about this for a long it, it, there's a there are a lot of ways to make money in growth but growth is a lot riskier in that you look at a growth company and it may have a fantastic idea that simply won't work but you don't know it won't work until you try it. That's what growth is about. And it's why the ones that do succeed in growth can do phenomenally well. But if you look at, on average, it takes 10 startups for one successful company. And when you're in the newest of technology, it takes more like 100 startups for one successful company. One of the things we talk about and it's a philosophical difference between us and some other investors, is that if you buy something for less than its intrinsic value, in other words, if you broke the company up into its pieces and you sold it on the open market, what would it sell for? That's a, that is a figure that can be determined. When you look at the total stock value of the company, if the total stock value of the company, if you bought all the stock, now, by the way, buying all the stocks going the price up, but if you hypothetically bought all the stocks in a company, all the stock outstanding in a company at its present value, would it be worth more or less than the intrinsic value of the company? And if it's less, then the theory is, and it's worked so far, that eventually the marketplace will recognize the fact that this company is worth more than the stock price is currently indicating. And eventually it will recover. Over very long periods of time, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. And there are short periods, shorter periods of time, and shorter periods of time can be a decade or more sometimes, by the way when growth stocks outperform value stocks, but that turns around. But it's like, it's, you have to be patient, you have to use your time correctly. And among other things we use time correctly for is commercials. If you'd like to ask us a question, we have emails available. Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. 
Commercials are not about timing the market. They're about marketing the time. Ah, marketing the time. All right, so we're going to play some commercials. We'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. We'll be back. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake, and on the line with me I have... Jeff. We're both McClure's and we're both bald. There. I've said it. Uh, we have another question waiting for us. Uh, another great question from a, a great listener. That question is family office risk. He's got a question. Again, another uh, picture of the Wall Street Journal. And it's talking about something we talked about at the beginning of the hour. Archegos's collapse. And it's a, his question is, any thoughts to why family offices prefer these high-risk tactics other than better returns if they are right? The, if they are right, is, is this what's happening? The Wall Street Journal is kind of making a statement. Let me first say, what is a family office? Because a lot of people don't know about that. Family offices' registration criteria fall under the same act as fiduciary investment advisors. It's the Investment Advisory Act of 1940. And it's set up, a family office is typically set up to be a fiduciary investment management firm for a single family. That's why they call it a family office. Uh, it's easy to your family office and go, what, you just have your whole family in there? No, it, it's just working for one family. So this is typically billionaires that have their own employees managing the firm for them, but they need to make investment decisions and give investment advice, so they have to follow a set of regulations. Those regulations fall into investment advisor regulations, fiduciary regulations. Now, his question is about tactics, because the quote from the Wall Street Journal is that this the family offices, they're managing collectively more than $2 trillion now. Two, that's with a T, not a B or an M. $2 trillion being managed by family offices. And they look at this and say, hey, they're making these big risky decisions. The reality is we're not really sure all the decisions that are being made, but I would suspect that the majority of family offices are not leveraging like crazy and borrowing huge amounts of money to make their returns better. Uh, I'm sure you've got stuff to add on this subject. Uh, this, this big institution that failed was using a series of different investment banks to get to the market. And these investment banks sometimes knew about the other investment banks and sometimes didn't. And at each of those banks, they were also borrowing money against the value of their investments to buy into the market. That's called margin, leverage. But they were also leveraging other banks against each other. And several banks said, hey, we're not in this anymore. This looks risky. And then came back in when they realized how much money and fees for all the loans they could be issuing out that they're missing out on. And you had some more specifics on that subject. That's, that's what I see as the biggest thing is he made some bets and he was so leveraged that when he lost the bets, he lost more than the value of what he, so the banks that had loaned him money 
didn't get paid. This is why the banks are damaged here. You know, it talks about family offices as though they're an investment vehicle. They're not. A family office is simply an investment advisor that in the United States has to be registered with the SEC or with the state and is managing the investments for a relatively few number of investors and the investors are entire families rather than individuals. There's no specific definition, no legal definition for family office. It's just a general characteristic. It's not an investment vehicle. And they are required to issue what's called a form ADV, sometimes known as a form firm brochure. And it's a good idea to read that if you're interested in investing through a family office. What? You don't invest in a family office. You really couldn't. Here's, you almost never get the opportunity to do invest through a family office because part of their registration is that they're not accepting clients that aren't part of that original family, that aren't somehow associated with it. So some of the family offices, though, that have sprung up recently have multiple families that they're managing for. Right. The idea is to pool the their assets together in order to get a better deal on the market. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. No, nothing at the all. Point, the point is, in the particular case that went on with Wang's family office management, it doesn't say what family he was, office he was managing for or what families he was managing it was, for. It was mostly his own money. Uh, he, had, he had been managing for other people and, and had issued back a lot of that and now was just managing for himself. The point is that the danger in companies like Arch- Archigos, was that the Archigos? Yeah, you're the one that figured out how to say it, so don't ask me. Well, that was a good guess at any rate. I couldn't find I was calling them Arch Egos because I think they had Arch Egos. The point is... This guy, Wang, was managing money, and he had possession of the money. He had control of the money. Whether he was managing for somebody else has never been fully disclosed. But the point is, he held it himself. So if he goes bankrupt, if his, if his organization goes bankrupt and you were investing through his organization, you stand in line with the rest of the creditors. That's true of a lot of investment firms out there that advertise a lot. If you look carefully, they don't have a custodian. They hold their own money. You basically turn the money over to that company. If that company goes under, makes some bad bets, leverages too much because you're not paying attention, you can get in a lot of trouble and you can you can literally lose your money there. On the other hand, if you very carefully use a custodian, in other words, when you use an investment advisor, the investment advisor does not have custody of your money, but instead turns the, the custody is done through a custodian who reports independently. You have a lot more protection from this type of thing. It's also important that when you, you find the custodian, the custodian be a well-known insured organization. Uh, brokerage, major brokerages registered with the SEC are insured, and they sometimes have extra insurance. And it's a really good idea to know that that's there and take a look at the firm and say, would I, would I deposit my money with this firm? For example, our primary company that we use for, for custodian, we use some others too, is the Bank of New York is Pershing, which is owned wholly by the Bank of New York Mellon. And you can research those two organizations and you can figure out whether or not you'd want to deposit your money there. I personally don't think I would have any problem depositing my money at the Bank of New York Mellon. Well, we would feel that way because when we did our due diligence on them, we thought they were a good company. Well, it's the oldest financial institution in North America. They're fully registered and they're pretty safe. Yeah, and that's true in all the major banks right now in the United States, some more than others, but they're all passing their stress tests. 
So when you're looking at this, this is one of, I was just talking to somebody about this moments ago about doing research, about digging in. People are, I keep hearing this thing, how do we know what's true? Well, you can know what's true by independent verification, by coming at it from a different location and saying, is, is this correct? The Wall Street Journal is really great for breaking news and all kinds of things. The, the thing with GameStop, where they, they covered Keith Gill as Roaring Kitty, and they made a big deal out of him as the little man, and he was against Wall Street. What they missed was that he was a registered Wall, Wall Street professional. Uh, so you can look that stuff up. There are places to do it. And when people are talking about what do we trust, start with your own verification. Verify them enough that you say they, we deem them reliable. And that's where we come from. And we're about out of time for the first hour of our program. Do you want first to say? Hour of, the first hour of our program? Our hour is up. Yes. Our hour is up. Um, we have another hour coming. Yes. Our our other hour is not up, it's down. So we'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we do investment management and fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth. Um, we give this to them as, as what we offer. Um, we've got email waiting. We've got voicemail waiting. Voicemail during the weekend, real life people during the week. You can reach us locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same number toll-free, presuming you have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form on there. You can contact us through that. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. Email us at jeff or jake at tpwc.com.